to my podcast. So, what's going on here? What is this? Well, on the other podcasts that I do, Smack My Pitch Up, where we pitch original ideas for pre-existing properties, there are alternative episodes, uh, a different format, where one podcaster pitches an original idea for a movie. And so I created one of these uh, with the idea, with the intention of having it put up on Smack My Pitch Up. Then Black Adam came out. And my idea is not Black Adam, but some of the texture of the idea is close enough to what Black Adam does that I thought it would be better to get this out sooner rather than later with the statement that this is something that has been swirling around in my mind for decades and that there are no original ideas. So my original pitch, Yellow Sands, is something that I had fun with, and if I present it here, then I can put some licensed music and stuff in there that I would not be able to do with Smack My Pitch Up, pardon the the head cold. So yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to chop it up with a little licensed music to make it more thrilling and exciting and present it here on my handle as Jonathan Blade. Uh, once again, pardon the head cold, but enjoy. I am an idea that I've been working with for a long time. Elements of this idea are pre-adulthood for me, something I've been swirling around and never actually committed to paper. I think I started writing uh, a scene for one of the parts of this idea is like in my early 20s and never continued past that. So I sat down and sketched out what this would look like, and I think I have something fairly workable. My pitch is for a sword and sandals movie called Yellow Sands. And what I'm looking for is something reminiscent of Troy, basically a Bronze Age sword and sorcery or sword and sandal style film, but with the influence of how it's done in Bollywood or how it's done in Chinese cinema, where the presentation is spectacular. So it's Bronze Age sword and sandals, city-states, leather thongs, but also magic and color, uh, unashamedly ridiculous. And I don't want it to be as mirthful as perhaps some of these uh, foreign things are. This is serious. It's uh, not grimdark because it's not dealing with sophomoric emotional content. But yeah, kind of of grimdark. Uh, With that said, let's begin. So, our scene opens on Bronze Age War. Tremendous conflict, horrible death, and stylish carnage. The losing army is dwindling as superior forces and the godlike might of the invading leader carves a path of destruction through soldiers and citizen militia, competents alike. Alright, so the scene periodically cuts back to the walled city they're defending and the regular citizens huddled inside to uh, generate tension for us as the viewers. They fear they're going to die. They may all die. It doesn't look good. And so the defending army is whittled down to the king and a scant few elite soldiers. So they skillfully dispatch as many of their attackers as they can, and they seem to be doing quite well, but then the invading king, with godlike might and with godlike bearing, appears and quickly kills all of the defending elites. The defending king, who is defending the city-state, the walled city, looks to the sky and says, Have we given you enough? or whatever accent you can choose for that character 
and is summarily cut down, beheaded by the invading warlord. The warlord celebrates, his soldiers celebrate, the sky turns dark. The camera launches into the sky and we are transported to the heavens slightly outside of reality. A goddess in repose looks down upon the battlefield and with a slight and merciful smile takes action. She removes a long needle from her hair and pricks her finger. And she squeezes a drop of blood into reality, letting it fall from the sky. As it rains down, the drop changes into a fluid-spinning, irregular cylinder of blood. The cylinder slowly separates into two intertwined shapes with the sound of spinning blades. The blood becomes flowing red robes containing two impossibly beautiful women in a spinning, falling embrace. They look at each other with the deepest of love and desire and then aggressively push away from each other, flinging themselves across the ends of the battlefield, riding their vertical orientation and jarringly stopping their descent ten feet off the ground and, of course, on the opposite sides of this battlefield. Now, simultaneously, they lower to being a foot off the ground. They hold and look around to find something. As they float, the bloodlusted invaders, while in frightened awe, are preternaturally smitten with the beauty of the beautiful, angelic beings. With maddened lust, they run towards these angels, their hearts full of ill intentions. The blood angels pay them no heed, as they have just spotted each other across the battlefield. In this moment, the way this divine weapon works is that the angels are bonded. They are one, and they need to be together. As the entranced soldiers approach the unmarked area, they are shredded. No angelic blades are visible. The angels are instead surrounded by a rotating sphere of invisible lines. Several planes of circles surround them, spinning like blades. And you can see these planes, the vague outline of the sphere, as blood and viscera are carried around the bodies of the the, the blood angels and projected out behind them. There's a pause of shock and terror on the battlefield. Now the air moves, and simultaneously the blood angels see each other, eyes filled with longing. There is another pause, and then they launch towards each other, threshing bodies living and dead on the battlefield as they go. The center point of their mad dash is the warlord. He sees this, smiles, and stands his ground, very confident in his his demigod powers, his strength, his abilities. As they converge on him, he is shredded as easily as his army. Now the angels come together in a lover's embrace, and the carnage sphere extends, destroying every combatant left on the battlefield. And then you cut to the placeholder title, Yellow Sands. What is Yellow Sands? Yellow Sands Sands is one of my life themes. Uh, you can probably find it if you look it up uh, from the Con Super Session OST for something that you may not be familiar with. But when you hear it, if you listen to it all the way through, you'll be like, this is amazing. I love this song. Uh, Yellow Sands is my jam. And this, this idea is part of what I see when I think of Yellow Sands now. Anyway... That opening has been living with me for a long time. Like I said, I wrote some of that, I don't know, 20 plus years ago. The rest is something that I put together just last night. From, like I said, a cornucopia of ideas that I've had over the course of time. Because I wanted to do a sword and sandals epic. Bronze Age versus the Iron and Steel Age of sword and sorcery. 
but still with the steel of clanging weapons and such. So like I said, the opening has already existed. The rest is just a little less fleshed out. But what I'm looking for is basically like the Dirty Dozen or Seven Samurai, the the gathering of men for Dirty Job, and over the course of the action, everybody gets it. Because that's the kind of story I like. You see relationships build, friendships grow, everybody gets it. So anyway, uh, the story of the Battle of the Blood Angels took place like a thousand years ago in the timeline of the story being told now, and it only lives on as legend. We get to see a time-lapse of the city-state changing, shrinking and growing over a thousand years as the city-state eventually conquers, recovers, is conquered, recovers, and then becomes an empire. And on this empire, a new threat in the form of the Sea People, which is a real piece of history surrounding the Bronze Age collapse of civilization, the Mediterranean area, which is where most civilization was at the time, 3,000 years ago. But anyway, the Sea People are slowly overtaking the Empire. The Sea People are brutal, and unlike other invaders, they have no interest in subjugation or incorporating the native population. They want to commit genocide and take all the land's resources for themselves. So we establish that the Sea People are real baddies, not like real-world baddies where they actually want stuff for practical reasons. They just want to destroy and see the world burn. You know, that kind of thing. So across the course of the film, we see the Sea People's armies on the march, moving towards our city. The modern king, and I haven't given names to any of these characters because I'd have to come up with ridiculous names that would be meaningless in this context. They're never, none of them are going to be like Mike or Jim. It'll be like Ernath or, you know, whatever. So I'm just calling them by what they are uh, in the story, and hopefully we can keep track of them, because I think it's going to get kind of funky as I go on. But anyway, the modern king is already a legend on the battlefield. He's fair with taxes, the empire's roads are free of bandits, granaries are full, he's well-liked, he has seen many battles, and knows that he cannot take this foe by himself. So then you have the gathering of the Dirty Dozen. So we have the king... In my mind, the king is Idris Elba. Probably colorblind casting, going for like a Middle East setting, but still with peoples from uh, the best man for the job, like they do with British casting these days. I, like most people my age, was a little taken aback by that idea because I've been enculturated in uh, the evils. Not saying that all of our society's uh, issues are unique, but the evils of our society not being able to see myself in certain uh, aspects of the culture. But I'm really taken with the idea of colorblind casting for something like this. I think, who cares? Best man for the job, as long as the person is pretty. That's also an old person thing. I want to see pretty people in my fantasy. As long as the actors are pretty, they can do whatever they need to do. So, yes, Idris Elba is my king. So, the gathering of his uh, seven samurai, his dirty dozen, it's the king. Uh, it's the king's warrior son and his martial daughter. So he has many children, but his eldest, I will not say his eldest, because technically the eldest should be kept away from that kind of thing because of succession. So we'll say that his favorites are martial. So he has a warrior son and a, a warrior daughter, first among many because of their incredible skill and loyalty to their father. His three most trusted generals the head of the armies of an ally state with whom he has done battle back-to-back, -back, uh, supporting each other to glorious victory. You know, an old war buddy, basically, which brings in another army. Uh, the head of the Assassin's Guild, who works for the state-ish, and is a woman. 
a mystical being who we'll call a jinn of unknown origins, who's been in the king's employ for uncounted generations of kings. So he works, the jinn works for the kingdom, maybe a blood bond or some kind of contract signed in souls or whatever. However, you get a mystical being to work for you. There's a jinn that works for the kingdom. And Sam Jackson, who's the head of the Pyromancer's Guild or some shit, or the Grand Vizier, whatever. That's the Dirty Dozen. So the mystical being is scared. The djinn is scared. He seems to know something terrifying about who leads the sea people, but he will not say what it is that has him so frightened. But Sam Jackson seems to know. So the group are finally gathered. So the team, the group, and their army encounter an exploratory force of the sea people, and... Despite having a greater force, our protagonists barely defeat them. They are incredibly strong, supernaturally so, the Sea People. Uh, they lose a general and the king's son. The king is, of course, distraught, and he forces his Jinn advisor to tell him what he knows. And what he knows is that the Sea People are led by a demigod, who is very much similar to the Jinn, as the invaders were a thousand years ago led by a demigod. The cycle represents the gods crushing hubris and reinforcing the humble nature of mankind. Well, we know the stories, but how did our people win a thousand years ago? What the king asks. And the jinn answers, it's a petition to the gods along with a sacrifice. So what's the sacrifice? Well, for whom is the victory, and what are you willing to give to achieve that victory? And the king's like, well, the victory's for us for the glory of the Edomites, or whoever the people are. The Edomites were an ancient uh, empire back right before the, uh, the the Bronze Age collapse. But um, anyway, so then the Jinn relates that the sacrifice must be equal to the value of your nation. And the king's like, okay, huh, what? The king finds this unhelpful. He decides in his pride that he will make his own way on the field of battle. He gathers more allies. Uh, they decide upon strategy. Finding something that kind of works, he summons the warrior queen of the mountain people. She arrives with her forces, and with her teen son, who looks strangely like the king, turns out that he knows his father, knows their relationship. So the king's legitimate daughter is taken aback by this. And as the battle rages towards the sea, they have hard-won battles against the sea people, with new strategies. And over the course of time, the daughter gets to know her new brother, and learns to respect his mother. We see all these relationships between the generals build and grow uh, so that we feel for them as they are horribly murdered at some point during the process. So anyway, the protagonist's forces are dwindling, but they are also kind of consistently winning, like savage, hard-won battles. All the while, the king wonders what he has to do, what sacrifice needs to be made to appease the gods and gain their assistance. Eventually the tide turns, as Sam Jackson, of course, betrays the king, and his forces are pushed back to the capital city. And this is where the demigod warlord of the Sea People takes the field of battle. There is a mighty back and forth. Every remaining general gets a chance to peacock, and then dies a terrible death on the field of battle. His daughter and his illegitimate son, the king's daughter and the king's illegitimate son, die back to back on the field of battle, having earned the love and sibling respect of each other. Sam Jackson and the Jinn destroy each other. The king remains, having lost almost everything but his kingdom, and he realizes what the sacrifice must be, what he, what he is willing to trade against the legacy of his ancient civilization. And the answer, everything. He's willing to trade everything. He has to give everything 
so he faces the demigod warlord of the Sea People in single combat. And while the battle is spectacular, he falls outside of the city walls. He dies outside of the city, but before he dies, the king looks up and sees the skies darken, the clouds flashing like lightning but with no thunder. Only the king sees this. This is an image in his mind, but he smiles, and then the warlord takes his head. There's a pause as the warlord celebrates and a wind blows across the battlefield. The actual sky then grows dark and we hear the sound of spinning blades as the warlord looks to the heavens with fear in his eyes and screams, No! Cut to black. And that is Yellow Sands, a mashup of a couple ideas that I've had spinning around in my head for longer than I care to relate, as I said before. If you have enjoyed this, rate, comment, and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, and drop us a line on Twitter at PitchSmacked. And of course, if you love popular culture and all of its iterations, check out some of our other shows on the GUI network at GUIPodcast.com. This has been a solid smack with a leather-clad sandal to a scarred bronze pitch. We'll catch you in the next one. <laughs>